This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Office of Special Counsel has had a busy season. It's dealt with a landmark Hatch Act violation case that sent one federal employee home without pay for six months, and it found itself at the center of a federal employee lawsuit over the vaccine mandate. Here in studio with a review, special counsel himself, Henry Kerner. Mr. Kerner, good to have you back. Great. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And it has been a tumultuous time, but one thing I wanted to start with, and that is the fact that a related and interactive agency with you, the Merit Systems Protection Board, finally has a quorum now for a few months running after five years, I think it was, without a quorum, a couple of years with no members. Is that helpful to Office of Special Counsel? Yeah, absolutely. We're very thrilled that the MSPB has a quorum. Uh, Tristan Levitt, who's an alumnus of OSC himself, and Mr. Ray Lamone. So we have a quorum, and there may be another member too, so that they would be fully staffed, and that is hugely important to the Office of Special Counsel. Most importantly, we can get stays, formal stays, which uh, keep federal employees who uh, are in place. So instead of getting disciplined, they can stay in place while we investigate, so that's really important. And also, a lot of our decisions go to the MSPB, a lot of cases we bring. And so having a fully functioning MSPB is crucial to the uh, to the OSC. Right. And if people do get disciplined and the OSC lacks enforcement power of that, the MSPB with actual members can enforce things. Precisely. Exactly right. So it's good for the government on one case and good for the employee on another case, depending on which side of yes or no they fall on. Sure, but it's also good just to have finality and also to know that you have sort of a referee, if you will. Sure, and they've been putting out cases. I get some of them emailed to me that uh, interesting cases, some of them going back a long time. Yes, they have quite a quite a backlog, as you'd imagine, since they haven't had a quorum. And so they've been very productive. It's really nice to see. Yes, because, you know, at some level, really, what the Office of Special Counsel and the MSPB are about is justice at the bottom of all this procedure and process. And so justice delayed sometimes is not quite full justice. 100%. Absolutely. And also the the special counsel used to be a member of the MSPB. It was the special counsel of the MSPB until they got separated. And so, as you say, that is pretty much where the Office of Special Counsel derives a lot of its powers is to go to the MSPB for enforcement. Let's get to one of these cases, and this is this Hatch Act violation. I think the case is called Special Counsel versus yeah. Cowan, mm-hmm. and this has been talked about a lot in town. Who is Cowan? What did he do? And give us why this matters. Sure, absolutely. So that was a 2014 case. Mr. Cowan was a, a Postal Service employee, and he also ran for a partisan political office in Tennessee. He was a county commissioner. Um, because he, you're not allowed to run for office under the Hatch Act – we brought a case, and there was a settlement reached uh, that allowed him that, that that asked him to to get a hundred eighty day suspension unpaid, which is significant, um, but it did allow him to keep the job that he ran for and won, and uh, his federal and his federal position as well, correct? Right, from which he was suspended for a while. So his expectation was, I'm the commissioner, and I get to go back to my agency. That's correct. And so there was a settlement reached. It went to the MSPB. There was no board, as we discussed. So an ALJ uh, had some concerns about the fact that he seemed to be benefiting from the misconduct, which is the running for the office. Uh, but a decision was made at that time, this precedes all my tenure, to allow him to keep the to, to, to do the 180 days, that that was viewed as a significant uh, disciplinary action, and that the 
um, that the uh, removal of, or, or stepping down from the office was not required. That settlement was then uh, recently adjudicated by the board to stand. And so the, the decision of Cowan stands for the proposition that a settlement that encompasses a legal settlement is, is permitted to stand if OSC and, of course, the, the subject agree on it. It does not give license to people to, to hold the office that they ran for illegally or unlawfully. And so I want to reiterate to the federal workforce that it's very important for them to remember that you cannot run for the office and it certainly would not be our intent to allow people to keep that office going forward. Right. So if you want to take the risk of saying, well, it's worth six months of no pay and I get to go back to my job and also the office I ran for, no, 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 no. Correct. No, 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 no is exactly right. We would take a very – the MSPB and OSC have have, have taken uh, – have viewed active candidacy for a partisan political office to be a very serious violation of the Hatch Act in the past and one that has in the past warranted removal from office. And so we are certainly going to take a very dim view of that. So what is the disposition of Cowan himself at this point? The Cowan case is settled, so the settlement was approved by by the board, and so Mr. Cowan's going to do the 180-day suspension unpaid, and then he does get to keep the office because that was agreed on. So that one got away, so to speak, from well, what the intent is. Well, I, I just think, like I said, that's the somewhat unusual case, and that proceeds by tenure, so I don't know all the facts. But under certainly my reading, I think we are not going to allow people to benefit from the misconduct of running for the office unlawfully. And even if they lose, they can't run for the office. Correct. That's it's, the violation. It's, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's the running for the office that violates the Hatch Act. We're speaking with special counsel Henry Kerner of the Office of Special Counsel. And by the way, can you be appointed by a local or state government to a position and – how does that fit into the Hatch Act? So my understanding is that, for example, you could you could be an elected official and then get a federal job. It is not the, the position itself that's illegal, but the candidacy. So presumably you could be appointed to a job. You just can't run for it. Right. So it could be probably something benign like a commission or a zoning board or that type of thing. I, I guess they're appointed in some places and elected in some others. But you can accept an appointment from your local county council to the Commission on Library Renovation or something. I'm making this up. And you'd be okay. You would. Also, don't forget, a lot of these positions are nonpartisan. So if it's a nonpartisan office, then you can have it anyway. So that's the Hatch Act wouldn't generally apply to nonpartisan elections. Right. By the way, I looked this up, I think, last year, and there is no place in the United States where dog catcher is an elected position. That's a, <laughs> maybe a term of a vernacular, but not a reality. Got it. Okay. All right. So uh, we can settle that one, too. And the other case I wanted to ask you about is the Fifth Circuit decision that says OSC is the venue for people who want to challenge a personnel action related to the vaccine mandate, which I guess the echoes of which are still rocketing around the federal government. Yes, they sure are. There's an executive order that the president signed uh, back in 2021. Uh, which mandates COVID-19 vaccinations for all executive branch employees. And that was challenged in court. Uh, The district court in Texas, I believe, initially uh, issued an injunction. So it wasn't in effect. The Fifth Circuit overturned that, overturned the injunction. And it is still stayed until the end of this month, which is May. So 
but it's supposed to go into effect starting in June, and that could result in a big, a big number of cases coming to OSC potentially. Right. The injunction in June prevents the furtherance of the vaccines. Correct. In, correct. The injunction has enjoined the executive order from taking effect. But if that injunction is in fact lifted, um, as it, might, it likely is at the end of this month, we could see a number of cases coming to OSC because of how the opinion is structured. Right. So that is to say people forced then on the account of their jobs to have the vaccine could bring an action? Absolutely. It's jab or job, as someone said. And so the idea would be that if there is a vaccine mandate and an employee doesn't wish to to get that, there are other avenues. They can get an accommodation, religious accommodation, for example. However, if if they get proposed for, for removal or um, for some other discipline, they do have the avenue to come to OSC for, for us to examine their case. Right. So you'd have to take each case. There's no blanket ruling on what, what you're likely to get. Exactly right. Because we've seen in the military the – instances of religious exemptions have been almost zero, maybe one or two literally across all of the military challenges. Mm -hmm. But we don't know yet in the civil side how that might turn out then. Correct. We don't know whether the religious challenges are going to be upheld. We also don't know about some constitutional or other other challenges. So we'll just have to wait and see. And yes, we do take each case uh, on a case-by-case basis. Right. Are you prepared for an onslaught? Should that happen? <laughs> well, um, you know, OSC stands ready to support the federal workforce. So absolutely. Any special preparations you've got for this? We also, as, you, as I think I mentioned to you the last time we chatted, we have a COVID task force, which has been largely impaneled to support individual um, federal employees on on health issues. That's how it really began to to, to sort of save their health. But if we need to uh, look into these issues, we we stand ready to help. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you how the Office of Special Counsel itself did during the pandemic, during your period of telework, and also you know what the caseload looked like, the nature of it, the size of it, the qualities or of the cases that you were getting. First of all, the office itself. It's not a huge office. No. Review for us how many and how many were, still are teleworking, and how you're functioning. Sure. Um, so obviously, um, you know, pandemic was difficult for us, like for everybody else in this country. Uh, we're, we're certainly no different in that regard. Uh, we have done very, very well. I'm incredibly proud of the uh, performance of my employees. I think we approached the pandemic with a lot of foresight. Uh, we were one of the very first agencies in Mar- on March 16th of 2020 to shut down completely and go to permanent uh, uh, precautionary telework. Uh, we have a really tremendous uh, IT department that was able to, to uh, set everyone up with uh, computers and get us up on, on Teams. And so the, the safety and, and um, health and safety of all the employees at uh, OSC was my top priority. So I think we're really successful in transitioning to full-time telework. Um, as I indicated, we've set up a COVID task force to support the federal workforce, specifically people who may not be trained as, as medical professionals who are, who are asked to do medical you know, intake on COVID but didn't have the right equipment. So we really tried to intercede with what we called uh, quick course corrections and really save their health and life potentially. But the performance has been just great. I mean, the bottom line is we've had our two best years in terms of what we call favorable actions. So those are corrective actions or inter- interceding on behalf of federal employees. In uh, FY20, we had 405 and in FY21, we had 393. Those are the two highest numbers we've had in certainly uh, recent memory. Now, I will say, obviously, there has been a slight diminution of cases. 
um, as you might imagine, as people are not in offices, they're not seeing as much, you know, misconduct. Um, so there, are, there have been a few, fewer cases, but the flip side is it has allowed us to get through about 1,000 cases of our backlog. So we've made a lot of progress getting through some of the older cases that have been sitting there over the pandemic. Yeah, interesting. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon that the caseload would go down because if someone, say, is discriminatory in some manner or they just are nasty to someone because they don't like them, that being remote doesn't necessarily preclude that type of thing from happening. But I wonder if you sense that there's some phenomenon of people together that makes it worse, that exacerbates the issue of people mistreating one another or supervisors mistreating employees. Absolutely. I just I think when people are together, there's more misconduct that's going to be observed, whether it be on the disclosure front, so systemic issues, a fly infestation in an operating room. Well, if the operating room is not being used or if no one's there to see it, you're not going to know there is a fly infestation. So we've had a lot fewer of those cases. And then I do agree with you. I think as people are less together and more isolated, I think there's a diminution in misconduct allegations. We've certainly seen that. We are speaking with Henry Kerner, the special counsel in the office of special counsel. And so what are the I mean, what's the most common type of misconduct that tends to come through? Well, I mean, obviously, we care the most about retaliation cases, right? right? So somebody complains about something and then their boss doesn't appreciate that they complained and then they get retaliated against. So retaliation can take various forms. I mean, in the most obvious form, it's a firing or a suspension. But there's other forms. We take your duties away. We stick you in the, uh, you know, the, the, the broom closet. We take away your, your red stapler, you know, all those right. things that we've seen. Right. So it can take any of those forms and then or we give you a bad review or something like that. So we see a lot of those kind of misconduct that we deal with. Yeah, that's what's surprising because you could still do that with someone remotely, you know, not invite them to the Teams or Zoom meetings anymore. That's the, I guess, the online equivalent of being in the broom closet or the basement. But you are nevertheless seeing it go down. Our cases have definitely gone down. We have from fiscal year 16 through 18, we averaged about 6,000 cases. And then in 19, right before the pandemic, it went down to about 5,500. And through the pandemic, it's gone down to 45 and now 3,500. Now, I do want to add, we do expect that number to increase in part for what we just talked about, the Fifth Circuit case and the invitation to file with us, which I think a lot of federal workers will avail themselves of. So we do expect some COVID uh, and vaccination cases. But we also think there's going to be increased cases as we now have a slow, gradual return to the workplace. Right. So there's human interaction is, is an issue then that seems to result in more cases. It seems to be that way. That's certainly been my experience in our cases. Absolutely. And with you know whistleblowers, I guess the potential there is for that to take place because of a lack, say, of protocols, because people have different sensitivities to what they think should happen during COVID. And if they think the agency isn't doing everything it should, that could give rise to whistleblowing type of cases. There have been a number of cases. There's no the plexiglass. Right. Protective gear, masks. Masks have been a huge issue, right? Who wears it? Who has to wear it? We've had a number of complaints of people not enforcing mask mandates or not wearing it properly. So, you know, people have different sort of uh, assessments of risk. And once you bring them to the workplace, they're going to clash. Look at airlines. Airlines have had a huge uptick in complaints of or passengers fighting with one another and with crew and with the crew, and that's clearly just going to happen because people just view those requirements very differently. And getting back to OSC itself, are you back in the office? What's the status with respect to office location? Right. So we do a hybrid. Um, OSC is primarily we're we're a small agency. We have a our 
primary workstations headquarters in, in D.C. We also have some field offices. Uh, the D.C. office is on a hybrid. So we're on a what I call a 3-2 or 2-3. So we're in three, two to three days depending on – the agency is basically in three days. Um, and then the employees can pick two of those, um, including one mandatory day. And then two days are, are, are still remote. And that happened without a lot of fuss? No fuss at all. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Henry Kerner is special counsel in the Office of Special Counsel. It's always great to have you in. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.